Welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. Join Scott Jones and Bill Bohr for an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics. Funny, contentious, outrageous, there's something for everyone. And now, your hosts. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Good to be back with you, Scott. Uh, Good be, to be back. You're, yeah. You were in Costa Rica. You made it I, back from Costa I made Rica. It back. You were worried about me. When I, we were talking, and I was getting ready to go into the jungle, and you didn't want me to go into the jungle. I didn't before. want you to go. I, I'm so embarrassed. I, I, I don't attach too many people, but I said, Bill, I don't like this. I, uh, I, was, uh, I admitted to Bill that uh, I have uh, an attachment, and I, 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 I didn't like all this gallivanting around. Yeah, and we're actually giving you an insight here. We're being a little more personal and emotional. So if you want the full uh, experience of our emotions for $500 at our Patreon we'll account. We'll you on our phone calls, which are hilarious. I mean, they're no, actually, right, right, right. if well, you like the podcast, you'd love the phone calls. The phone um, calls, yeah. That's But that's for those of you at 500 If for For $1,000 a year, we will sh- we will actually give you pictures of us with tears in our eyes. It happened and once. And for $2,000, we'll come to your house. We'll come to your house and cry in your yard but you need to we need room and board drinks everything you got to subsidize that but we'll come we'll cry in your yard and um yeah but and we'll rake your leaves as well but it's yeah we'll do that yeah yeah i don't know shovel snow snow. (laughs) i don't know we're doing that bill will cook for you we'll cook for you but anyway uh but so it's good to be back and uh you sent me a great article today and i said we need to talk about this yeah no and this is how we work and i think an art i know it's funny. I didn't realize that um, it was um, uh, that 1922 was the sort of onset of largely, roughly the fundamentalist con- modernist controversy. I mean, this famous sermon that um, Harry Emerson Fosdick preached, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And I came across this through. Uh, John Fee, who is a professor at my um, alma mater, Messiah College, and he he was quoting from another article. I mean, this is like uh, the Torah. It's like we're doing like source <laughs> criticism. He was quoting from an article by Daniel Williams. So hat tip to both of these guys. And you know this this guy Daniel Williams, who um, wrote the this long article, um, a- tries to answer the question: Shall the fundament did the fundamentalist win? And he largely says, you know, it's really complex because if you'd looked in the subsequent immediate decades, you'd probably say no. But if you're looking now, you might say yes. And, you know, and and it seems like in the words of um, one of our recent presidents, it it seems like they're winning very strongly, (laughs) very powerfully, (laughs) very beautiful. I love the fundamentalists. They're fundamentally. Very beautiful, very powerful. It's a powerful <laughs> religion, very strong. <laughs> well, you know, I think part of, uh, you know, again, I'm trying to do a really short historical background. I mean, many of you who are listeners uh, know this stuff as well as we do, if not better. But the fundamentalist modern debate really began as a, um, you know, there was a reaction to what was thought was seen as the creeping modernity coming into universities and seminaries and then therefore into the churches it 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 really was um if you would the battleground 
probably initially was Northern denominations, Presbyterians in particular, but the Baptist, American Baptists as well. Um, and it was an interesting, the, the, you know, the, the, um, What's fascinating the behind the scenes of this, both the fundamentalists were funded by uh, wealthy business people and the modernists as well were being uh, funded by uh, very wealthy people, each who had their own agenda, why they wanted to see their particular uh, party win this. And Fosdek's sermon given at Riverside Drive, which is the church itself was a product of uh, Rockefeller and uh, Rockefeller basically built that church for him. For him, like, how great is that? I mean, was it penance or was it an opportunity to try to control American Christianity or both of the above? I yes, think, yes, yes, I think it is. yes. But this idea that, um, it, and and what's interesting, and I and we're going to give you show in the show notes, we'll give you a copy of this, but. One of the things he find the point of is really interesting that the early fundamentalist modernist debate, American Protestantism, was was in many ways about epistemology, right? It's how we know. It's about the nature of authority, uh, about the nature of a you know is the bio is the Bible viable? Um, in many ways, they were kind of arguing two different kinds of science. And uh, I will also, if you want to go to deep dive, I still you, there's probably I'm I'm sure there are there have been other books, and I can't remember her name, but you've interviewed a really first-rate uh, American historian, church historian, and she's at University of North Carolina. Do you know who I'm, is she at Duke or North Oh, North? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, who's written yeah. on this subject as well. And she's, she ends up in the New York Times and Atlantic. She writes for the Atlantic as well, doesn't she? But to, the book I used when I taught this, and I still think it's a, just a first-rate book, was Marston's Fundamentalism in American Culture. Oh, it's, great. it's a great book. Yeah, it's Marston great book. is. He's probably the one of the two or three best American historians. He's still alive. Um, and and retired. Uh, he was OPC. Yeah. But professor emeritus from Notre Dame, but this idea that this is, there really is a clash of, of two different kinds of scientific thinking. Many way, the modern scientific view of it, you know, around Darwin. And you might even say when it comes to, to politics, Marx, and when it comes to uh, human behavior, Freud, I mean, this is a simplistic Church History 101 version of this. But that verse, you know, the more kind of Scottish realism uh, idea of self-evident truth, right? Yeah. Um, and so it, the initial debate is really about how we know things and what's the nature of biblical authority and the veracity of the literal text, okay? Uh, one of the results of this was splits in the denomination. Um, uh, Machen left Princeton and went and start Westminster Theological Seminary. Um, and there were other, you know, a lot of things went underground. In many ways, one of the reasons it felt that fundamentalism lost because it, in many ways epitomized our, in a cartoon version of the Scopes monkey trial and how uh, the fundamentals were made to look foolish. Now, in all due respect, it's not really a, it was not a fair fight, right? Um, uh Charles Darrow was able to make um, William James Bryan was dying and was able to turn him into a caricature. Um, and he was a much more complicated figure. Well, he, well, he was a guy that was against Darwinism for social reasons. Yeah, he was against social Darwinism. He was a progressive. He was for the poor. He saw World War I as the example of what social Darwinism was about in Germany's um, really brutalization of the Belgian people in the name of progress 
Um, uh, he ran for Democratic uh, nomination. He was in Woodrow Wilson's um, cabinet. And was he has a, a great sermon, right? The cross of gold. Cross of gold. He was which, which talking about the idolatry of money. Yeah. So he 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 was a a defender of of social justice, um, and a Presbyterian elder. So he he that was for him. It's it's really interesting because some of these battles how they take out and still happening today. Um, Sometimes what causes people to take the field of battle in these religious things is very different than what they what they present or how they're understood. I think that's true about some of the debates over human sexuality and abortion as well. Yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting because, the you know, the we have, you know, we're. A hundred years. That's crazy to me that we're a hundred years after this. Like. That seems, you know, because when you're studying it. I guess pre two thousand. It's when something's in the same decade. It, it just <laughs> seems different, right? And it's we're a hundred years out, and yet the you know these influences are still here. And it, what's interesting now is that you know the evangelicals and fundamentalists in our culture have have a lot of cultural resources that they they didn't have you know, in the burgeoning movement in the early part of the 20th century, right? They're, they're, well, I think part of it's because of they are the most reliable voting bloc in the Republican Party, which is a minority party, but because of our, you know, because of the uh, great compromise, uh, we're not really a representative democracy. So um, there is there is a lot of, there is a lot more influence politically than they should probably have numerically because of, gerrymandering because of small conservative states get as many senators as large populist states, which tend to be more progressive. So there's a sense where the Republican Party is a minority movement in this country. Evangelicalism, fundamentalism is a minority movement, but they currently um, have a lot of inroads to, to power sources, including the Supreme Court. Well, yeah, and I mean, I I think, but I mean, they're a minority, but not a, I mean, evangelicals, I mean, their their numbers are, I I forget what the last stat I looked at a couple months ago, but I mean, it's not, they're not like hugely behind mainline or. It's not, no, no, they're more, I think aren't there more evangelicals than mainline folks now, or is that, I don't know the latest statistics of that. Yeah, I I mean, I think they're. Hard to count that, right. They're close. I mean, they're close. And then, of course, unaffiliated are are getting bigger. The the fastest growing group is people that are checking no religion at all. Right. No. And, you know, one of the things, I I think part of the reason that that looked like progressive, the progressive wing won the battle, first of all, they were more culturally accessible. uh, I mean, you have Niebuhr. Um, hanging out with FDR, you know, um, and much of the agenda of the New Deal certainly played well into more progressive social ideas and and commitment to the poor and things like that that are hopefully non-ideological, but they tend to, sometimes they're treated that way. And the other thing, too, is I think the post-World War II church boom. I mean, the mainline churches were uniquely positioned to benefit from that, right? Because the neighborhoods that grew, there was money pouring into denominations. Churches were just growing because they were there, the suburban boom. And so you had this amazing growth happening that appeared to be, you know, I think everybody, I remember talking to ministers from that generation, 
you know, we didn't really know what we were doing, but we thought we must be doing something right because all these people are coming. But, you know, that bubble burst and, and the decline um, began, you know, well, you and I have spent our entire, um, I've spent my entire adult career as a function of the decline. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and dealing with that. And then also you had things, I think the, you know, part of the, the, the progressives were right about the civil rights movement. And I think also the troubled conscience of, of people who took the Bible seriously began to rethink that. So, you know, one of the things, you know, that I remember as, you know, in, in high school and in college, and even as in my, a young adult, there was, with, there was these kind of semantic things we do. Well, I'm an evangelical, but I'm not a fundamentalist. So, so, you know, I, I'll go to, I would never go to uh, Liberty or I would never go to Westminster, but Fuller is an option. Right, right, and, right. And at one point, Gordon, you know, Gordon Conwell was in the middle there. So there was all these kind of, you know, you even judge the seminary by, by, you know, how open it was to certain ideas. There were people who did, you know, scholarship, biblical scholarship that, you know, it became less, you know, there were people who actually believed in God that were using um, higher criticism, you know? So there were things where it became, you know, there were different kinds of biblical criticism and ways to kind of be able to think faithfully and be orthodox and yet still be engaged as in intellectually. So there was, you know, there was a lot of things that happened, you know, in the fifties and sixties, you also had the post, I mean, again, also the, you know, the post re uh, reassessment of theology after the Holocaust. And so there, were, there was a lot of things going on. And, um, but then, you know, I think there's a sense where uh, the disconnect of what was happening in seminaries and where clergy were as opposed to their congregations, both politically and spiritually and theologically. And, and then you, you just had kind of the emergence of entrepreneurial Christianity and, and non-denominational folks and fundamentalists were, you know, they, they were probably more suited. They've been kind of living that way anyway. You know, you had to, you weren't, you, it wasn't respectable to be the Bible church on the edge of town. So they've been, I think, working on their craft, plus you throw in the TV ministry and the charismatic movement, which tended to be, you know, charismatic movement tended to be, end up being, you know, fundamentalists who spoke in tongues wasn't necessarily like that at the beginning, but it kind of became that way. And so you got all these groups merging and they're having a lot of people, a lot of influence, a lot of money. And um, here we are today. Yeah. And that's the irony, I think, of this whole kind of thing, which, again, as we said, we, we might spend, we might revisit this throughout the year. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I think there's a lot of stuff we could do with this and different figures and different ideas. And so we're thinking about yeah. doing our top 10 um, modernist fundamentalist warriors. Who, yeah, who, we could who, do those. Yeah. And also the ideas and things. But I yeah. think what's the irony of the whole thing is that the fundamentalists were more modern than the modernists. Yeah. yeah. They were better at utilizing technology, right? They were yeah. better at mass media. They were got better at like, you know, so there, there's this thing where it's, it's interesting that they, you know, with the snake eats its tail kind of thing, you, you you kind of like, right. like who's the great they're both children of modernity and who's the more faithful child i mean if i'm the modernist parent i'm sort of like well you know i feel like the modern the fundamentalists are the better modernist child they've really been more loyal to my to right. my commitments Whereas, yeah, you just go look at their soundboards yeah exactly <laughs> i mean that's you know that's uh yeah that's the thing i mean it's yeah, I mean that kind of thing is it's and and again I don't I, I 
I don't I don't necessarily fault them for that because I'm not anti modern. No. But 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 if you're but it's it, the interesting thing is like, what does it say that the movement that waged its war on modernity is the child is child of is really the loyal son is really the lo- the obedient child. And and the interesting thing too. Now we have we are you know some of the groups that we enjoy you know being talking about the most. This one apply to, but for the most part, the fundamentals have abandoned the Bible. I mean, if you now they'll use the Bible, but it's no longer. I mean, if you used to, I you know, I I occasionally, usually because I wanted to go out with a girl, and the girl would happen to go to a fundamentalist church, I would find myself sitting in those churches, and and it was yeah, you were the Bible man, you were going verse, you know, you were verse by verse, you were learning the Bible, and I and frankly, I you know, I I'm very thankful that I spent you know my parents weren't, but I grew up in more fundamentalist churches and evangelicals and. I learned the Bible and I am forever grateful. My my love for the scriptures, you know, is started at my grandmother's knee, but certainly was nurtured by these folks. But I always said they taught me the Bible so well I couldn't be one anymore. <laughs> uh because you know, it's not it's not biblical, but that doesn't stop people. And you know, so much of these life, you know, life application Bible, you know, seven points for a living. Uh, you know, I, I always or how the Bible teaches traditional family values. I don't know what Bible they're reading. If they're finding family values in the Bible, <laughs> they're obviously avoiding large King David, King David very strongly value family <laughs> values very powerfully. Yeah, no, very I, powerful. I think actually Trump probably Trump if, Trump, Trump yeah. they, they probably like were like, look, Trump's like, I never really read the Bible. Why would I read it? Let's tell you about David. There's seven wives, there's concubines. All right, very powerful. He's <laughs> very powerful. I'm 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 the the, 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 I, the he should have called it the David Accords. He goes, I like that I like that hallelujah song, even though it's biblically wrong too. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and then I picture Trump going, and that wow, I just discovered Solomon. Very beautiful, <laughs> very powerful. There are a lot of there really, you know, there are a lot of things. You know, and one of the things that's interesting in the article, he says one of the reasons that uh, he thinks that fundamentalists was also able to flourish and flourishing because everybody is experientially based. Now, no one, it's not a true, you know, now what's really interesting to me is you and I have been involved with this as well. People, more conservative people, more culturally conservative people are, are leaving denominations, starting new ones, pretty much over the homosexuality issue, but they can't really argue biblical. I mean, they say they're biblical, but because nothing else that they do is really based on any coherent biblical theology. Right. I mean, they have this kind of there's this kind of interesting relationship with the Bible and selectively literal or selectively taking passages. But it, it, in many ways, it's it's a kind of a, a way of an apology for a traditional approach to things. And I, again, I I think sometimes those who are progressive and I, you know, that's more where I'm at now on social issues, not, not necessarily theological issues, Uh I think sometimes people are much too quick to de- abandon 3,000 years of Jewish Christian social teachings. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that should be a little harder for people than it actually is. But, you know, they're they're trying to, when they argue why they're actually starting new denominations, they can't even, they, they have trouble saying it with a straight face. They can't really, they can't tell you. They don't want to say, you know, well, we, we're for evangelism, but but I'm not sure how we're going to reach out to gay people or people under the age of 30 who don't agree with, with us at all, or not even under 30, people under 40 who, who do not agree with us at all about our positions of sexuality, but we're going to be about evangelism. Good luck with that. I, it'll be interesting to see how that works, right? Because 
um, I, I think it's a complicated it's a complicated world out there, and and, it, and because it's an experientially based Christianity, yeah, you know, they have the same problem, you know, liberals have in terms of coming up with a coherent metaphysics, you know, uh, and I and I think you know, which is another podcast we I, we we're going to do the the uh, bankruptcy of liberal metaphysics, which you were talking about the other week, which I think is really an interesting idea. So I think the territory is a, is a problem. I think it's a hard territory. I think it's a confusing one, and it really has a lot of practical challenges. I, I'm working with a, a church right now. I'm an interim pastor, and I'm going to I'm trying to help. We're, we're going to begin to con, construct our church information form. And so, what, what, <laughs> what, who, how do you advertise? Who, you know, because this is a church that I think really values and would be open and needs, I think, some really traditional spiritual nurture and would be open to that. But they're progressive and they're open to people and to, to social issues. So, you know, he talks about the different divides. I mean, you know, we're, we're you know, we have uh, one of our favorite people in the world, Matt Milner, is at Wheaton College. And so there are some really, really interesting thinking going on about racial issues and and inclusivity and things like that. How do you navigate that at a place like that? I mean, I think he's doing it well. He has integrity, but there are a lot of challenges out there because the divide is not modernist fundamentalist. It's a very fragmented one that he talks about. Yeah, yeah, and that and that is. I, I want to say though, I, as you were as we were thinking about, like, you, I, I just something came in my mind as you were talking about outreach and stuff. And we've talked about him many times in the podcast, but Tomas Halik, I mean, is the guy. Yeah. Who is the leading light on these things, right? Who's the person that is, I think, ahead of his time on the ability to actually reach out to a secular context um, now that, you know, things are in flux. And and this guy has been behind the Iron Curtain. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're really interested in evangelism, Halik is the guy. I mean, Les, Leslie Newbegin in a past generation was one of the leading people. And, and it's yeah. interesting. They're both ecumenical Christians, right. one Protestant, one Catholic. But Halik, I mean, the guy is, I, I think like two years ago, he baptized 30 adults or something at Easter. I mean, yeah, in, in Prague, right? In, yeah, in Prague. In, yeah, in, yeah. And arguably the most, one of the most secular countries in the West. I, I you know, I think also, his critiques of limitations of modernity as well as the limitations of fundamentalism. And as a Catholic, that fundamentalism would include evangelical, spiritual, spiritual, experiential Christianity, I think are very helpful. I mean, you know, the interesting thing, I, I was picking on Marson's book and one of the things he, he says really interesting, I, I love what he says here is that we can, you know, as Richard Lovelace has said, this history, when viewed without a proper awareness of spiritual forces involved, is as confusing as a football game in which half the players are invisible. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. You know, this idea that um, in American church history, I'm still reading from Marston, many authors have pointed out to the intertwining of Christianity with various isms of the times, nationalism, socialism, individualism, liberalism, conservatism, scientism, subjectivism. Common sense objectivism, romanticism, relativism, cultural optimism, cultural pessimism, intellectualism, anti-intellectualism, selfism, materialism, and so forth. Fundamentalism, as we have seen, incorporated some of these into its vision of Christianity. Yet God can certainly work through some such combinations. 
Christians trust in God may be mingled or confused with some culturally formed assumptions, ideals, and values. Inevitably, it will. The danger is that our culturally defined loves, allegiances, and understandings will overwhelm and take precedence over our faithfulness to God. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, that's true. I, I think, you know, those of us who who have worked in mainline denominations, we see the fruit of a progressivism without a solid rooting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and the fruits of that are are not much, right? And I think our fundamentalist brothers and sisters are walking down the same path. Um, but, you know, God is, I, my whole career has been in mainline churches, even I didn't grow up in them. And, you know, I've seen God do amazing things in hundreds of people's lives. Um, and, and so good news is God's not limited by our limitations, but that doesn't mean a lot of damage isn't done in, in, the, in the meantime. Yeah. The one bone I had to pick with this piece, um, was he? He's such Schleiermacher as a problem, and it, it's very interesting. This great dean of nineteenth century century European theology, um, Schleiermacher was not a subjectivist. Um, like you know, Schleiermacher was trying to get. You know, he was he was asking, "What's the Christian thing?" Mm-hmm. And he was in an age which was skeptical about metaphysics in the university, right? Right. Like, and so he's like, okay, I'll give you something objective. I can chart out what's Christian by Christian experience. But he wasn't saying it like in the sense of a Pentecostal church or a megachurch, right. what's somebody feeling. He's saying, look, I'll tell you what, historically, once someone thinks Christ is only divine and not human, or only human and not divine, the whole thing falls apart. Or once you start believing people don't need to be redeemed, or once you believe they can't be redeemed, the whole thing fa- falls apart. So right. he's doing something there that is interesting that, that is he's trying to be empirical. He's trying to use Christian experience empirically right, and historically and trying to map out. Right. But this is another one of our things for the 1922 uh, you know, series, 2022, because I, I think Schleiermacher is often misused. And he's the, I've said this before, he's the origin of the modern age. I mean, he's right the guy that was not orthodox, but not heretical. He was heterodox. He was blazing trails and, 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 and is misunderstood. And in this piece, which we'll link to in the show notes, I just wanted to, you know, my, 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 um, yeah. inherent always defense of Schleiermacher. <laughs> no, what's really, what's really good. I mean, yeah, I know. I agree. And I, I do think, um, uh, this, uh, I, I think for the most part, American Protestantism, Protestantism is essentially heterodox. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think, uh, and, uh, um, and that might be, if we all were a little more open to admit that, uh, you know, starting, starting to base with humility and repentance might not be a bad way to start, but... Uh, but we shall see. I forget what somebody taught me one time in seminary. It might have been in seminary or somewhere. I, I, I forget. I wish I could attribute it. But they basically said, you preach heresy in every sermon. Right. Right. Because you're always, you can't preach the whole tradition in one sermon. And so what you're always doing is course correcting. If you're committed to the tradition, like right. one week you're kind of preaching this part of the tradition. And then you... 
It's like a radio station. Remember the old school radios? Like now it's not, d- digital. It doesn't mean anything. But back when it was like where you were tuning with right. a, a knob. Right. And it was always you found the center. You found the station by by avoiding the static. And right. You're always going back and forth between the static to find the station. And I think that's the romance of orthodoxy is you're always floating between static to try to find the station. Yeah. That's a good word. All right. Well, this is a Thanks, great friends. Thank you. Uh, we look forward to more of these conversations and your feedback, as always. All right. Peace. Peace to all of you. Take care, Scott. See you. How about that episode of New Persuasive Words? Thanks so much for joining Scott and Bill. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and will join us next time. Till then, thanks for listening and God bless.